Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Thank you for joining us today. Jonathan Dunbar here, Sibylline's Director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. On the podcast, I have an analytical team that focuses on Europe, namely Hedda Halverson and Alex Lord, where we'll be discussing the impact of COVID-19 on the region. The podcast is split across three sessions, and for the first, we'll look at the current situation in Europe and how this is likely to unfold in the next few weeks. Hedda, in terms of some of the countries you've been tracking, where do they stand at the moment, and how have they begun, or when will they begin to ease the lockdown restrictions? So, JD, at the moment, we have seen that restrictions have already started to ease in various European countries. Spain, for example, is due to start their first phase one on Monday, on May the 11th. They have already started easing some measures, but the main restrictions that will start to ease happen at that time. France is also due to start easing their restrictions on the 11th. Currently, Spain is on track to enter this next phase. There have been a stabilizing in in deaths, which is obviously a good sign. And then there's also the potential for an extension of the state of alarm, which will be voted on today, which would then be extended until the 24th of May, if approved. In terms of Germany, there have been more measures east over the last couple of weeks, already starting in late April. In Germany as well, as states are beginning to be given increasing responsibility for the easing of measures with Bavaria, for example, due to open restaurants already on the 18th uh, of May. In terms of Italy, which obviously has been also very heavily impacted by the virus, measures started to ease on the 4th uh, with people being able to go for walks for the first times. More measures are set to be eased on the 18th with retailers, museums, libraries and such going to be able to open at that time. However, bars and restaurants uh, are currently not supposed to open until the 1st of June. And this also goes for for hairdressers and other contact businesses across the country. In Spain as well, they are due to start or permit regional travel only within the various regions from the 11th. However, with most of the, these countries, they the easing of restrictions will obviously be dependent on uh, the rates in terms of infection. And if there is a spike, there is definitely a risk of uh, these being reversed. Alex, what about some of the countries that you've been tracking? Yes, yeah, so in terms of Central and Eastern Europe, they've been seeing not as bad COVID numbers and deaths as Head has been mentioning the countries in Western Europe. Countries like Czech Republic and Austria were the amongst the first in Europe to relax the lockdown last month. Um, and we're seeing a number of other countries across um, Central and Eastern Europe already opening up with wide ranging easing um, of lockdown measures expected um, for the rest of the month. Uh, Slovakia is an example. The government this week decided to speed up its lockdown exit strategy, given that the numbers were pretty good there. They allowing all shops, museums, outdoor tourist attractions and hotels with some um, restrictions. For the first time since the lockdown was 
enacted. Um, a lot of these countries enacted lockdowns very, very early. So relative to uh, bigger economies in Western Europe, for example, they're in potentially a better position to open up at the moment. But this isn't the case everywhere in the region. Um, Bulgaria, for example, is one of the few countries in Europe where rates are still increasing. But despite this, the government has said that it will not extend its state of emergency beyond the 13th of May. So the situation continues to remain pretty fluid in places, although by and large, Central and Eastern Europe are in a better position going forward to relax their lockdowns in the coming weeks, and indeed already are in many um, instances. But obviously, as Hedda alluded to, uh, the threat of a, um, a second wave remains at the top of everyone's mind. Thank you both for those comments. Let's have a quick look at the UK then. The government has been accused of reacting slowly to the pandemic and is likely to lift restrictions later than many other European countries. We're also currently awaiting the government's much anticipated announcement on how these restrictions will be lifted. Alex, what are your thoughts on this situation and how do you see it progressing? Yes, yeah, so the UK government's come under quite a lot of scrutiny recently, particularly this week, um, as the number of deaths in the UK was overtook that of Italy, making it the highest um, death rate in Europe. The European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control um, this week also uh, released a report basically saying that the UK is lagging behind most of Europe, with not much substantial change seen in the UK in the last two weeks in terms of COVID numbers and infection rates. But the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has said that he does want to start releasing lockdown measures from Monday the 11th of May, the details of which um, are likely to be set out in a speech he's going to give um, this Sunday. But even so, the relaxation of these measures are still likely to be quite cautious. Although the government is facing mounting pressure from businesses to reopen the economy as soon as possible, there remains a lot of concern about the continuing um, spread of COVID. Social distancing will, of course, be paramount to this, with businesses and individuals required to limit contact as much as possible, as well as keeping two metres apart wherever plausible. Also, um, staggered arrival and departure times are a potential new measure, all aimed to basically reduce congestion and overcrowding in workplaces, as well as in public transport and things like that. Restaurants and cafes will probably remain open for takeaways only um, from Monday, but other non-essential businesses might well open. We'll hear more about those on Sunday, potentially. But of particular interest was a statement by the Chancellor today that said that he is planning to reduce the government furlough programme from July, um, which obviously will sustain uncertainty and concern for businesses um, that have up until now relied heavily upon the scheme. Hera, how about the situation from your point of view? So, I mean, I very much agree with everything Alex just said. I think key phrases for the UK due to this heavy level of scrutiny that they have come under will be caution. We've also seen over the last couple of weeks that this fear of a second wave is very much at the forefront of the government's mind. And I think that they therefore will be quite cautious moving forward, even if some restrictions start to be lifted from Monday off. I think these will be smaller changes and that we will still have a lot of the sweeping restrictions in place for at least a couple of weeks more. As some reports say, 
that towards the end of May uh, is more when we'll see the more well, can they, drastic easings, so to speak. But yeah, I think definitely caution is, is, is a key word for them. Testing will also be something that I think will be paid increasingly attention to. As we've seen, for example, in France, uh, one of the goals there that the government has set has been to conduct 700,000 tests a week uh, as part of their easing of measures. Here, the government has struggled some to, to, to reach their aims when it comes to testing, with the government first having set out a goal of 100,000 tests daily by the end of April, which they did reach on the 30th of April. However, testing levels then sharply declined until the second of uh, on the second of May. So it will be important for the UK to also keep up with uh, with the testing, I believe, in order for them to ease measures further. But definitely, I think moving cautiously ahead. Taking taking all this into account and, and the case studies that you've used on the various countries uh, and the measures they've put in place, and we, we've touched on this already, but in terms of the business environment, what do companies need to take into account in terms of the people, the assets and the operations as these restrictions are eased and as we move forward to, to some sense of normalcy? Hedda, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, I think that definitely there are a lot of considerations that various business will, businesses will have to consider. Again, it will depend somewhat on, on the sector in certain areas such as service, hospitality, and also other um, workplaces such as construction. There have been um, indications that various entrances will have to be available as in multiple entrances to avoid people entering the premise through the same door to avoid overcrowding, which are obviously measures that will, will maybe take some time to, to get in place. With, when it comes to other businesses such as hairdressers or other medical offices along the lines of dermatologists or dentists and such, uh, there will probably be strict hygiene regulations in place, uh, which will require them to make some adjustments that can also take some time. In terms of offices, there has been a lot of talk of protective shields, uh, separating employees, marking on the ground to encourage and make social distancing in, within offices uh, easier, uh, limited use of lifts. And so there are definitely a lot of considerations that will have to go into whether even businesses would want their employees to come back into offices, especially businesses where you can work from home, as it may in the end be easier to actually keep their employees working from home for the coming months as opposed to going back as, as soon as possible. Though in industries where that's not as much of an option, I think also the government will have to allow them some time to adhere to regulations that are likely to be put forward. Alex, what are you saying in this regard? Yeah, I would echo Hedda's points. Um, in terms of the working from home, I think that's definitely become going to become a sort of, uh, it will stay with the new normal that we're going to be seeing. And I think an interesting point will be that employees might not want to return to work, even if they are allowed to, um, given the, the dangers that people might perceive at work, but also on the commute. So I think public transport in particular will probably remain a limiting factor um, in the return to normal. I know in, here in London, the uh, London Underground is looking to drastically reduce the numbers taking the tube to ensure social distancing measures are 
maintained. But we also potentially see continuing strains on labour flows and movement, even as the lockdowns are steadily removed. We've already seen some European countries loosen travel restrictions like the Czech Republic, but many of these countries are also introducing a 14-day quarantine period, which we saw at the start of the um, outbreak of the pandemic. But this is likely to create further delays to the return to normal, um, particularly for businesses that rely on international travel. Supply chains, very similarly, will be continuing to be strained. We've been seeing relaxations of air, ground and sea borders, um, with the Baltic countries today actually announcing that they will open their respective borders from the 15th of May. Uh, but delays at the border will likely continue um, as restrictions are relaxed piecemeal across the continent, um, affecting supply chains and supply chain continuity in the weeks ahead. That draws our first session to a close for today. Thank you, Hedda. Thank you, Alex, for, for your insight on these um, topics and these issues. And thank you for those listening for joining us too. Please stay tuned for the next session where we'll be looking at the longer term impacts of COVID-19, particularly in terms of the economic impact and how the pandemic has impacted society throughout Europe. Welcome back for our second session, continuing our discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on Europe. During the previous session, we looked at where Europe currently stands and how the situation is likely to unfold in the coming weeks and months. For this session, we're taking a slightly longer term view, looking at how the pandemic will continue to drive change within society and Europe's economies, drawing out relevant implications towards the end of 2020 and into next year. Hedda, can you share some of your thoughts on what you've seen in terms of how COVID-19 has impacted societies in Europe and what trends we're likely to see over the next six to 12 months? Well, so we have already started to see that it is simmering a bit in Europe. There have been multiple protests in Germany and the Netherlands. There have been some localized riots in, in Paris and some clashes, though small scale. In Brussels, there have also been some minor unrest in Greece and some celebrations that were authorized, but maybe not the best idea in, in Portugal on the 1st of May. So these protests, especially the ones that have taken place in, in, in Paris and in, in Germany, primarily Berlin and in The Hague, uh, definitely indicate growing discontent with the lockdown measures. Though these are now starting to be lifted, there is this issue of social economic division and tension that has been exacerbated by, by the virus and by lockdowns, especially in Paris. That has been quite clear in the suburbs where underprivileged communities especially have been really feeling the brunt of the virus and of the lockdown. Uh, we also have, you know, families, for example, in uh, council estates in London can be five people in a one bedroom flat with both parents put on leave or even getting laid off. And how this will obviously have very negative ramifications for their personal socioeconomic conditions. This will in turn drive frustration, anger, also fear, uh, which can easily start to manifest itself into more physical forms of protest that can in the end, also results in, in violence, also drivers for crime. Uh, as we see lockdown measures start to ease and people will be allowed to move 
around more freely. It will be more difficult for police to and other law enforcement agencies to contain and prevent gatherings of people, which can then spark incidents which can trigger protests. In Paris, for example, there was an isolated incident with law enforcement that uh, triggered at least four nights of of localized riots in which cars were set alight uh, and there were damage to, to property. Alex, how about you? What are your thoughts on how this is going to impact society moving forward? Yeah, so for me, one of the things I'm expecting to see, and we're already seeing signs of this, a rise in Euroscepticism across Europe. The EU has faced quite a lot of criticism during this pandemic for its slow response to helping struggling member states, um, in particular Italy and Spain. And the, the pandemic has exacerbated existing and similar tensions, political tensions within the bloc, in particular the north-south divide. We've been seeing highly indebted EU states like Italy and Spain primarily call for shared EU debt, for example, the so-called corona bonds. But numerous fiscally conservative northern states like the Netherlands and Germany have resisted these calls. This will probably almost certainly be utilised by Eurosceptic and populist parties across Europe um, over the six to 12 month period um, and not just in the south. If Northern governments do indeed actually agree to increase financial aid to the more heavily affected um, states, particularly in the South. And we could see Eurosceptic parties in the Netherlands, for example, but elsewhere capitalise on that. But it's not just that. I think the EU will face a number of other pressures going forward, including governance issues and disputes, particularly over the next six, um, six to 12 months. The member states like Hungary and Poland have both increased their own powers during the pandemic and sort of used it as an opportunity to push through potentially controversial reforms and laws, all raising concerns over rule of law and EU governance norms, concerns that were there before the pandemic but are likely to increase um, because of it. Uh, Just last week, we saw the EU, for example, issue a new legal case against Poland's government over its controversial judicial reforms, which have been a long running issue, but the government may well just ignore them. So all of these issues will likely increase political polarisation across Europe and place quite a lot of strain on the EU this year. And I think that's definitely something, a trend that we should be watching closely. Thank you both for that insight. Moving across to Europe's economies, which are, of course, somewhat intertwined with with society and the social impact that the pandemic is having. I mean, we've seen the rather severe economic impact it's had across the board large-scale shutdowns in the manufacturing and hospitality sectors, significant disruption to supply chains, and alarmingly rising unemployment levels, to name but a few examples. How do you see this continuing to evolve towards the end of 2020, and what are the associated implications that companies need to be aware of? Hitta, what do you think? Well, so, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, there have been some dire uh, implications as a result of, of the coronavirus crisis, and especially for countries such as Spain and Italy that are very dependent on tourism. This will continue to be an issue throughout 2020, even when countries start to open up. There is also an issue of when international travel will be, number one, permitted, but also whether or not people will be that keen to to really travel as much as they used to. There are also, of course, issues with the airline industry and such. So that can long-term implications for for those sectors and related ones. I think more broadly as well, the European Commission has 
predicted that the recovery uh, will start in 2021, but it's not until 2022 that we'll see the economy get back to the kind of level that we experienced in uh, 2019. So definitely putting us you know, back a bit in terms of timelines of where we thought we were going in 2019. This will drive high levels of uncertainty and market anxiety throughout 2020, well into 2021, most likely. And this situation is also likely to be exacerbated by the issue of Brexit, which negotiations are currently ongoing between the EU and the UK. There is then the looming threat of potential tariffs, which could be introduced uh, over the, the short term in terms of 2021. That will be probably more of an issue for the UK than for the EU, but will obviously also impact the bloc. Thank you for that. Alex, what about yourself? How, how do you see this unfolding in terms of the economic impact and the implications associated with that? Yeah, so I think unemployment rates are obviously a major concern at the moment. Like Hedda said, Europe is facing one of its deepest recessions um, in recent history, and the number of businesses that are already facing closure or staff cuts doesn't exactly paint a very rosy picture. The, For example, the UK Chancellor's decision this week to reduce the government furloughing scheme from July has already created quite a lot of concern amongst businesses and labour unions. European businesses and workers, they're unlikely to receive the same level of help, state help as they have during this first phase of the lockdown. So that's obviously going to sustain uncertainty and potentially increase unemployment. Some of the predictions of unemployment we're seeing are quite significant, particularly if lockdown measures remain extended as we as potentially they are going to be in um, Western European countries that are worse affected, or indeed if they are put back into place later on after a potential second wave. Unemployment could reach as high as 25% in Ireland, one prediction has, um, which obviously could have profound impacts and effects across the country. But as well as unemployment, I think we're also going to be seeing increased calls for economic self-sufficiency across various countries and across various sectors, which might upset existing international supply chains and markets, at least the ones we used to and um, before the crisis. So the need for ventilators and personal protective equipment, for example, um, that we've seen during the pandemic could see governments look to increase domestic production to prepare for future pandemics and react to public pressure to prepare for that. But it's not just medical supplies. The lockdowns and the border controls could all facilitate greater calls for economic self-sufficiency more generally. So that could potentially affect globalised supply chains and ultimately reduce international demand across various sectors and various products potentially going forward. Thank you both. That concludes our second session, but please stay tuned for our final instalment where we'll be looking at how COVID-19 has changed pre-existing threats and issues confronting Europe, if at all. Thank you for joining us for our third and final session of our discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on, on Europe. During this session, we'll be considering a range of other threats and issues that confronted and indeed continue to confront Europe despite the current crisis. These include external influences, rising levels of activism, and arguably a more traditional threat, terrorism. While Europe's government's populations have refocused to tackle COVID-19, what has happened to these threats and issues? 
Alex, in terms of external influences, you've been looking at Russia quite a bit recently. What are we seeing here? Yeah, so Russia has been stepping up its efforts to expand its influence across various regions of Europe, even before the COVID crisis um, happened. But we're seeing a real explosion of what I suppose you could call COVID diplomacy, um, utilising the pandemic and the implications for furthering influence. The Western Balkans, I think, is particularly the most obvious example here. Both Russia and as well as China, actually, have sought to strengthen support for themselves across these various um, countries in, in the Western Balkans. And it's interesting that we're seeing that the U EU, the European Union, is pushing back. The EU and West Balkan leaders met this week for a summit on the region. And I think the emphasis the EU placed on the region's destiny as, as part of the EU speaks volumes about the diplomatic battles that are going on there. The EU has promised quite large financial packages to aid the region in fighting COVID, but criticism against the EU is quite strong there. Serbia's president, Alexander Vucic, has criticised the EU fairly recently for its slow response and lack of solidarity, for example, at the same time praising Russia as well as China for its quick shipments of medical supplies, for example. Uh, this is a narrative we're seeing not just in the traditional battlegrounds of Eastern Europe, but also further west, particularly in Italy. Russia was quite quick to claim a diplomatic victory at the start of the crisis when it sent medical assistance to Italy at a time when Italy was criticising the EU for lack of solidarity and for not sending enough help. Now, while the situation isn't necessarily as clear cut as that, this narrative is nevertheless being utilised by Eurosceptic and populist parties across, across Europe praising the efforts of Russia as well as China, while at the same time criticising the EU. So this sort of division will likely be further exploited by external actors such as Russia in the months ahead. Um, and we're definitely going to be seeing more efforts to increase Russian influence and try to uh, utilise the, the divisions there. Heather, from your point of view, how do you see this, this area unfolding? Well, so I want to echo, obviously, what, what Alex has been uh, talking about, though I also want to highlight uh, the issue of disinformation campaigns. There have been numerous reports since the outbreak of Russia pushing out these types of uh, disinformation campaigns targeting the UK, but also Sweden and Norway. And I believe that this very much signals their intention to not only continue with this ta tactic and strategy, but also seek to exploit future crisis and flashpoints going forward. Moving across to the second issue that we highlighted, activism. We saw levels rising throughout much of 2019. What has happened to this trend and how is it likely to develop? Hedda, you've been looking at this quite closely for a while now. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I will say that the activists have adapted to the current situation very well. They are very active online. So in that sense, we haven't seen a decrease in activism at all. Uh, if anything, activists have been really good at using the, the current situation to push their agendas, using the current situation with COVID to emphasize why, for example, governments should be spending more money on healthcare as opposed to uh, the military or, or defense. It's also created a situation in which a lot of other people, not only active participants within activist communities, but also 
regular people, so to speak, members of the public are becoming more and more aware of the issues that activists have been talking about for a while. This definitely started already, especially with the climate movement, which has been ongoing for, for a while now, but also when it comes to separate issues such as, or is not completely separate, but when it comes to other issues, including, for example, anti-capitalism and, and peace activism, discrimination, human rights, these issues are also becoming very visible during uh, during the pandemic. And this is something that activists have been pretty good at highlighting, and they will likely continue to do so. This pandemic has provided them with a very good example that kind of demonstrates and underlines what they had, the message that they've been trying to push for quite some time now. Alex, what's your view on this? Yeah, so like Hedda said, the activists have been quite quick to um, adapt to the new situation, keen as they are to continue campaigning despite the lockdowns. Obviously, traditional physical protests and direct action have been limited during the, the lockdown, although some small protests have taken place, um, like a small climate protest in Athens earlier this week. But we have been seeing, as Hedda alluded to, greater utilisation of online and digital activism opportunities. Last week in the UK, for example, we saw Extinction Rebellion launch a campaign. Uh, the campaign targeted polluting businesses that have received or are looking to receive government financial assistance during the crisis, with activists going out to post posters on the businesses' premises. Now, while the physical protest would ordinarily have been the main part of the campaign, the real focus of that particular campaign, for example, was on social media. XR members posted pictures of themselves and tagged the UK government and businesses, trying to build broader public awareness of the issue. So what we've been seeing with XR and other activist groups are is the use of physical actions to generate much larger and coordinated online campaigns, which would ordinarily be impossible under the lockdown, um, all aimed to engage the public and lobby the government. But environmental activists in particular, but also anti-capitalist activists, will likely use the precedent of the lockdown to emphasise that their calls for major overhauls to businesses' modus operandi are feasible. If their message does gain traction amongst population in the sort of next six to 12 months, this could obviously affect the aviation industry in particular, with more and more businesses and individuals choosing not to fly and instead conduct business over digital platforms. And businesses that don't embrace this new normal and don't change the operations and resist those changes will likely face increased pressure from these activist groups um, and potentially the public at large, especially in Western Europe. Moving across to a long-standing um, threat in Europe, terrorism, which has traditionally come from Islamist groups such as Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, but more recently from right-wing groups and their sympathisers. While the threat is not as high as it was a few years ago, a recent knife attack in France and a foil plot in Germany has underlined that it persists nonetheless. How is this likely to evolve in relation to the pandemic, if at all? Hedda, what are your thoughts? Well, as you mentioned, the fact that there has actually been a terrorist incident during the lockdown and that there have been multiple arrests related to uh, to groups definitely demonstrates and underlines the fact that there's the threat of terrorism is, is still very much alive and present. In terms of how it will evolve, 
Europe has definitely had a lot of issues with lone wolf actors, though there have been more signals of, of also more groups operating smaller cells over the last couple of years. I think an issue to look at and keep an eye on going forward is issues related to radicalization. We have now had people being on lockdown for weeks and weeks on end. Many people are struggling uh, with their finances. People are feeling vulnerable. Maybe people that were already experiencing a lot of these problems, those have just been exacerbated. We risk seeing increases in levels of hate crime and racism, which is something that has been witnessed, for example, with relations to anti-Asian racism at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. It's easy for, for example, right-wing extremists to capitalize on this and say that this is the reason why we suffered so badly was because of uh, of foreigners coming over. There's also this issue of the economic implications and that people will just be not as well off, uh, issues of youth unemployment. And this is something in a climate that can result in radicalization on- online, a lot of people spending a lot of time isolated and on the net. And that can obviously happen by the form of terrorist organizations, terrorist cells in, for example, the Middle East, influencing people in Europe, but it can also be individuals themselves that are actually actively looking or come across something which kind of leads them down this this path of uh, of radicalization and which could potentially result then in, in increased levels of terrorism incidents. Alex, what's your understanding of the situation and how, how do you see it unfolding? Yeah, so as we've mentioned, the the fact that counterterrorism operations have taken place in Europe underlines the threat posed by Islamist extremism in Denmark, Germany, as well as further afield in Russia um, last week. While these arrests do highlight that the competent capabilities of counterterrorism organisations are good, um, it does underline these are enduring concerns. I think it's also important to note that far-right extremism was on the rise prior to the COVID pandemic, especially in Germany. We saw a number of far-right attacks earlier this year, um, as well as counter-terrorism operations that foiled um, potential plans and plots that involved assassinating politicians and targeting mosques, for example. This trend is likely to continue, um, especially after the lockdown rules are eased, and we see people returning en masse to public spaces. Obviously, the lockdown rules have up until now limited the opportunities for traditional mass casualty attacks, although like Hedda um, and JD mentioned that this attack in, in France did occur. But the fact that people have been remained at home means that traditional mass casualty attacks are, have been less likely, potentially. Um, but as Europe now begins to open up, with lockdowns easing across the continent, far-right and Islamist terrorism might become an increasing concern again um, and seek to exploit people's enthusiasm to enjoy the outdoors again after months or weeks under lockdown. In the interim, though, we might also see the targeting of supermarkets, of pharmacies, of these sorts of institutions and places where people still are congregating. So that might also be an enduring concern in the interim, even before the lockdowns are properly relaxed. Thank you both for for joining us on this discussion. We've covered a, a huge amount of ground on this, you know, looking at various developments and various issues that are impacting Europe at the moment and are, are likely 
into into the future towards the end of 2020 and into 2021. Just want to conclude by posing a question to both of you. Um, let's start with you, Hedda. What are your three main watch areas for you as an analyst? What are you looking at? What's what's of interest to you? Your top three at the moment. So for me, the one thing that I'll be uh, keeping a close eye on going forward will be the rhetoric coming out of populist right-wing parties across Europe and how they are seeking to capitalize on the crisis. Related to that, I'll also be keeping closer eyes on the polling data to see whether or not this message is being picked up and People are subscribing to what is being pushed at them from these uh, more extremist parties. Related to that as well, hate crime statistics will be, uh, I think, interesting to follow going forward, especially in the coming months, uh, as this can definitely indicate more polarization within society, and especially when it comes to uh, populist right-wing parties and extremist right-wing organizations, how they will be capitalizing on uh, and utilizing the, the crisis. Secondly, I think the issue of Catalonian independence will be one to watch. We've already seen Tora seeking to use the Madrid government's management of the crisis in Spain to push his separatist agenda. So I think it will be quite interesting to watch this going forward when talks between Barcelona and Madrid resume and how much of an impact COVID crisis will have on on separatism uh, within Spain, and also more broadly, if this is an issue which could exacerbate uh, separate separatist talk across the con- continent. Thirdly, I would say Brexit is one to watch. Come June, uh, the UK government have said that if not enough progress has been made in trade talks, then they will start to prepare for an exit on purely WTO rules and regulations. Um, as that is actually just a month or so away, it will, it's one that is more in the not so distant future, but will have quite important implications for, for labor movements, for tariffs and the health of the economy, not just in the UK, but also broader with, uh, on the continent. Alex, what about you? What are your three main watch areas? So one of the key ones I'll be watching is whether Turkey reopens its borders to refugees and migrants later this year. Early this year, before the COVID pandemic really hit, Turkey reopened its borders, uh, which led to renewed fears of a repeat of the 2015 European migrant crisis. And that obviously is creating quite a lot of stress within the EU, particularly, but also across the Balkans as well, um, and concerns. So whether Uh, President Erdogan decides to reopen that. Um, Obviously, the pandemic forced the borders to be closed um, in March, but that is a potential sort of sword of Damocles, as it were, he is maintaining um, over Europe, which might impact um, some policy risk and issues, um, such as slowing down the potential restoration of normal border controls in the coming months. Um, Number two, I think, will be the rescheduled local and regional elections in Italy. They were originally supposed to happen this month in May, but they've been postponed, obviously, because of the pandemic. But earlier this year, we saw quite an interesting regional election in Emilia-Romagna, where populist party, the League, didn't win as as they had hoped to. But I think in the sort of 
what we've been pulling out in this podcast, that the potential rise of Euroscepticism and the utilisation of internal EU divisions and other potential pressures, including a potential reopening of the Turkish border, could fuel support for those um, parties. And I think the local and regional elections later this year will be an interesting litmus test for Europe as well as for Italy. And I think finally, the Polish judicial reforms will be something I'll be continuing to watch. Like I mentioned in the previous instalment, the EU have um, issued a new case against the Polish government because of their controversial reforms. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether the government ignores this, as they have with previous warnings or not, and the potential implications for the EU and governance norms across the, the bloc um, and how the EU reacts to that going forward in the ne- over the next year. So quite a few points to think on there. Hedda, Alex, thank you again for sharing your thoughts on these topics. And to those listening, thank you for joining us on this discussion. If you have any further questions or if you'd like to know more, please do get in touch. Best means is via our email address, info at sibyline.co.uk.